our Father. How do we put together sentences that are worthy enough to be received by you? Our prayers always fall short. We give you imperfect sentences from imperfect hearts. The glory due your name cannot possibly be received from this prayer. Unless, unless this corporate prayer is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Then it doesn't fall short. Then it's gladly received by you. Then it does give you the glory due your name. We come to you, Father, in Jesus' name. We come to you in Jesus' work on the cross. We come to you, Father, in Jesus' perfection. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to his cross we cling. Now, we have standing. Now, we have your ear. Now, we make our request. God, I need you. In delivering this text, I need you. In one sense, I don't want the sermon study to come easy. I don't want the sermon writing to come quickly. I don't want the delivery to be silky smooth. I don't want this to be form and routine for me, where I'm just pumping out sermons week after week. I have no interest in being the sermonator, where it begins to come easy and I lose dependence on you. So thank you for the struggle, because it keeps reminding me this is more than flesh and blood. This is spirit and word. I lift before you my flock, these people before whom I stand week after week and deliver your word, these people with whom I live week after week in the trenches. Father, these are precious people, people to whom I will stand before you and give an account. Will you enable them? to adore the Christ I hold out to them. That I will preach him beautifully and they will see him as beautiful. We are in a narrative today. Will you help the flock to be transported into the narrative? To be like they are experiencing it in living color. That it would not be cold, dead history, but invigorating alive action. That they aren't watching the action, but they are in it. On my best day, on my best day, I can't produce this. If the Spirit doesn't show up, nothing profitable will take place here. Come, Holy Spirit, and work in tandem with your word. Father, it is not lost on us that Satan is involved in the preaching event. Your son Jesus taught us this. In parabolic form, he said, in some cases when the seed is laid down, immediately the birds come and take it away. We are entering spiritual warfare. I'm about to lay out the seed. Will you protect it? Will you help it to find good ground? Will you help it to produce fruit? Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some a hundredfold. Your word 
to your people is now my glorious privilege. Amen. Here's what I have for you today. One timeless narrative, five timely applications. One timeless narrative, five timely applications. I'm going to spend about 30 minutes <laughs> attempting to engulf you in the narrative. I want you to climb inside of this story and live with these people. I want you to walk where they are walking, to feel what they are feeling, to smell what they are smelling. When it's cold to them, I want you to feel it so deeply you began putting on your jacket. When they are weeping, I want a tear to well up in your eye. When they have blood splashed on their face, I want you to be so in the story, you wipe your face. I want you to forget your life for the next 30 minutes and be so entirely, totally wrapped up in this text that you're living in it. Then, I'm going to pull you out of the story. Just that quickly. Y yank you out and... and place you back in your life. You're going to see that this is a timeless narrative. This story penetrates your story. This narrative in crazy, intricate ways is tied to your narrative. I'll send you home with five timely applications to put the truths in this narrative to work in your narrative. You're dropped into the war years. Verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Would you mark that phrase, house of Saul and house of David? 2 Samuel 3, 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Church, I want you to pack your bags and go with me. Go with me to David's house. It's small. He is the king of Judah, but that's like saying you're the king of a small town. This house doesn't seem fit for a king. It's too modest and tiny. Let's go in anyway. But don't unpack your bags. We're not going to stay overnight. There's a small war room in the back. Let's just slip in and try to remain unnoticed. David is standing at the head of the table, flanked by military commanders on either side. They are all standing at attention, including Joab, David's general. David says, at ease. Joab proceeds, King David, we won another battle in this civil war. This thing is going exactly how we planned. It will not be long before they start waving the white flag. David responds, you think so? We've been in this for seven years. That's longer than World War I, longer than World War II. David barks, give me the numbers. Joab says, each battle in the Civil War has been consistent with the first. They are consistently losing 18 times more people than we are. 
If we lose 20, they lose 360. If we lose 360, they lose 6,480. They are dying and we are winning. Joab, when they die, we die. They are Israel and we are Israel. There are no winners in a civil war. <laughs> you could hear a pin drop. All the military commanders around the table, including the top general, Joab, didn't say a word. Joab's mother is David's sister. David is Joab's uncle. Joab has seen his uncle lay down the law before, and he's not about to speak. His place is to be spoken to. David leaves the war room in the back of his house, and he walks into the living room. The living room is packed. It's loud, too. You can't hear a pin drop in here. You couldn't hear a bomb drop in here. It's been six or seven years since 1 Samuel 2. David's not only been winning battles, but he's been winning women. He's not only been producing victories, he's been producing offspring. According to verse 2, David now has six wives and six children. We have the names of each wife and the names of each child provided. Not only six children, but six boys. They greet dad when he comes in. Dad, let's play football. Get off me. I'm trying to read this battle plan. They shirk in fear and slowly back away. It's a toxic home. All the wives vying for David's attention. They have no security as a wife. It's constant competition. She, look, look at her. She just, she just throws herself at him as soon as he walks through the door. Who's going to take care of her boy? She never pulls her weight around here. She doesn't clean or cook for this army of boys. Maybe later one of the wives approaches David. Amnon is, is being really mean to the other boys. He's hurting them and then laughing about it. Something is off in him. He needs a dad's discipline. David snaps. Why are you telling me this? I don't have time to raise those boys. He's leading an army. But he's not leading his home. That's David's house. It's getting stronger and stronger. But not without toxicity. There's a lot of yelling children. And a lot of jealousy and fighting among the six wives. <laughs> I want to leave this house. What about you? Let's go out the front door and walk north. And let's go to Saul's house. Verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Saul is not in Saul's house. Remember, Saul died on the battlefield. His son Ishbosheth is now sitting on his throne and sleeping in his bed and eating out of his refrigerator. He's also sleeping with Saul's concubines. Concubines were second-tier wives, slave wives, really, who cared for the children and did the menial tasks. Ishbosheth 
is the king now, so they are his concubines. His stepmothers one day, and his concubines the next day. Saul's house is in West Virginia. It's called the house of Saul, even though Saul's dead, because it still has the spirit of Saul. The spirit of rebellion. The spirit of acting before consulting the Lord. The spirit of rejecting God's true king and claiming the throne for oneself. You walk into Saul's house and it's a, it's a nice sized mansion. Not small and dingy like David's house. David's house is like a cheap motel. This is like Windsor's castle. Hey, unpack your bags. We're going to stay here a while. I didn't even want to put my bag on, on the floor at David's house. But this one, this one, is that a chocolate on the pillows? Is that a little fridge filled with sodas? We're home. David's house may be growing stronger and stronger, but I couldn't tell from the tiny living space and the barely enough food to put on the table. If Saul's house is growing weaker and weaker, there are no signs of it from the architecture and the decor. This isn't just the house of Saul. This is the castle of Saul. Two houses. David's growing stronger and stronger. Saul's growing weaker and weaker. Six wives in David's house. And many concubines in Saul's house. Joab leading David's army. Abner leading Saul's army. Or rather, Ishbosheth's army. David is king over the southern tribe of Judah. This house is in the south. They like country music and think tobacco is a vegetable. Ishbosheth is king over the 11 northern tribes of Israel. This house is in the north. They like Dunkin' Donuts and don't wave at their neighbors. <laughs> Judah was like the Texas of the southern tribes and often separated from the other 11 in the north. And such was the case here. Judah was the only tribe who recognized God's pick for king. David, it's time for us to go back to the house in the north and we're going to enjoy all those amenities. <laughs> There's Ishbosheth. He's the king. See, he's wearing the royal garb, the king's crown. He's coming out of the king's bedchamber. But what, what is he doing? Walking to the kitchen and making his own sandwich? That's weird. A king doesn't make his own food. He's the king, but the people aren't treating him like he's the king. Where are all the servants? Oh, over there. They are waiting on that man. Who is that? That's Abner. That's the one who made Ishbosheth king. He's the general, the number two man, but really, he's the king. 
Ishbosheth is nothing more than a puppet wearing kingly clothes. Abner is the one who is growing strong in Saul's house. Abner is the one who is being waited on hand and foot. Abner is the one making himself stronger and stronger in a weak kingdom. He doesn't salute Ishbosheth like Joab salutes David. He barely recognizes his presence in the room. It seems no one really recognizes his presence in the house. That's why I didn't even include him in the house on this graphic. Why do that? No one even notices he's in the house. It seems Abner has taken advantage and gained power and influence for himself. Ishbosheth is a pawn. Abner put the king's robe on him, and the 11 tribes knew it. Ishbosheth has no backbone. He's squishy. Tentatively walking around his own palace, he's squishy, ishy. He's a jellyfish. He'll not stand up for himself. But wait! Look at him! Look at him as he walks confidently over to Abner. He's walking like he has steel in his spine. He's walking with purpose. He stands over Abner, who's being fed grapes by the servant women. And he says, verse 7, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? You're maneuvering to usurp me, aren't you? When you bed the harem of a deceased king, you're asserting claim to the throne. <laughs> Look at Squishy Ishi. I'm proud of him. Standing up for himself and his concubine slash stepmother. Ugh. The mansion goes quiet. Abner's face begins turning blurred, blood red. He's boiling inside. You're going to come at me and accuse me of this? Have you lost your mind? I'll put you in here. You're a dead man if not for me. I've always been loyal to this house, the house of Saul. And now you treat me like a dog. You're going to bring this up, verse 8, charge me with a fault concerning a woman? All this because I slept with a woman? Abner is making light of it. His response hints that the accusation is true. This isn't just a private rendezvous, but a public slap in the face. This is tantamount to claiming the king's throne. Abner continues yelling in the house of Saul. I'll tell you what, Ishi. That's it. You question my loyalty to this house, I'll defect to the house of David. Right now, I'll move over there. It looks like Squishy Ishi isn't going to roll over and play dead, so Abner will defect to David. He's swinging his support to another house. While Abner is packing his bags and moving from the mansion to the rundown shack, let me talk to you about something. It's interesting what Abner said before he started packing. I'll join David's house because the Lord has sworn to transfer, verse 10, the kingdom from the house of Saul to the house of David. Abner, hot-headed Abner, who has known God, picked David from the beginning, yet still set up squishy issue as king. He spent seven years fighting against God's kingdom, and suddenly he quotes scripture. 
He quotes scripture that God will be king over all, that David will be king over all Israel. See, he only quotes scripture when it's pro-Abner. He doesn't seek the kingdom because it's a matter of divine promise. He seeks it because it's a matter of expedience for him. It advances him. Verse 11, And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Squishy Ishi had a moment of boldness, but it faded quickly. He cowered to the outburst and couldn't say a word. I mean, look at him over there, shaking in his kingly boots. Abner decides to send messengers over to David's house to let David know he's changing jerseys and he's moving in. Friend, will you come with me? Leave your bags here in Saul's house, but, but go with me over to David's. Let's get over there before the messengers get there. We arrive at David's small quarters and enter his living room, and the six wives are still there. And the six boys are still making a ruckus in the house. There. There. The messengers are knocking. David answers the door. They say, we came in the name of Abner. He has a proposal for you. He wants to make a deal. You bring Abner into your army and he will bring all Israel over to you. The remaining 11 tribes. The negotiations have begun. And David knows Abner has the clout among the seven tribes to sway them. In a sense, Abner does have the kingdom in his hand. David thinks for a minute and then he says in verse 13, Good, I will make a covenant with Abner. But one thing I require of Abner, that is, Abner shall not see my face unless he first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when he come to see my face. Well, <laughs> maybe we should have a talk with David. I mean, I hate to rebuke a man in his own house, but come on, dude. You already have six wives. Why do you need another? You can't control these kids. And you're going to have more? David's first wife was Michael. Saul gave her to David and then took her away from David and gave her to another man. She loved David and David loved her, but David certainly didn't wait for her. And she wasn't allowed to wait for him. She was forced to remarry. David jumps at the opportunity to accomplish national unity peacefully as long as one condition is met. He wants Michael back. He wants to reunify Israel. Nearly everything David has done has been an effort to heal the breach between his house and the house of Saul and thereby to heal the 12 tribes. It seems like the best way to unite with the least amount of bloodshed. Maybe David thought bringing Michael over, Saul's daughter, squishy Ishi's sister, would help the 11 tribes accept him quicker. Someone from Saul's family now in David's family. While we've been talking, messengers have been going back and forth from David to Abner. And look at what's coming down the street. Abner is approaching with Michael. But there's a third person. Who is that in the back? Verse 16. Her husband went with her. 
weeping after her all the way. This is a, this is a sad scene. This poor man has his wife stolen away from him and follows her weeping. Abner, the cruel man, yells, Go home! And he did. Affairs of the state take precedence over personal feelings. And David needs his seventh wife, or first wife, depending on how you look at it, back in his house. <laughs> I'm sure she was received really well by the other six women. <laughs> Would you like a cup of tea? Sure. Okay. Rifling through the kitchen doors. Oh, the drawers. Where, where is that poison? Where is it? And there goes Abner again. Once he dropped Michael off, he's gone. Let's follow him. He's making his way to the leaders, the elders of the 11 tribes. What is he saying to them? Verse 17b. For some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. In other words, as long as you've been looking for David to be king, all this time, all along, you've been looking for David to be your king, haven't you, since he killed Goliath? Well, what are you waiting for? I'm suggesting we bring it about now. Let's make it happen, Captain. Has not Yahweh revealed to us that David will eventually be the king over all Israel? Squishy Ishi can't protect you anymore. Only David can keep you safe. <laughs> Look at the shocked faces of the elders. Who is this guy? Abner was just fighting against David's house a mere week ago. You gotta give it to Abner. He woos the elders of Israel with God talk. He's, he's smooth. He knows how to use the name of God to serve his purposes. The leaders, the elders, receive it well. They seem to be on board. Abner's leaving again. Where is he going this time? Well, let's follow him. He's making a left turn there. He's going east here. Wait. He's going to Saul's hometown. Benjamin. And I know this because there was a man of Benjamin named Saul. I can't listen to this weasel anymore. We're going to have to stop following him. We know what he's doing. He's trying to convince this tribe, Saul's hometown, to join David. This will be the hardest challenge yet. But Abner's a politician. He'll sway them. Plus, they know they're getting nowhere with squishy Ishi as their king. Let's return to David's house. We're approaching. There's a feast. Food everywhere, singing, dancing, celebrating, kids playing, bouncy houses. This is a party. I wonder if this is a wedding feast for Michael or a re reunification feast for Israel. Likely the latter. Abner finished with Saul's hometown and he's now coming with 20 representatives from the 11 tribes. He's walking up to David. Let's get close enough to hear what he says. Verse 21. And Abner said to David, I will arise 
and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. While we're at this celebration, let's have a talk. Can you believe David honored Abner with a banquet? You don't throw banquets for sly weasels like him. Just witnessing this talk is cringy. The backroom meeting just makes me want to go home and take a shower. We just watched something I never thought we would see. This backroom deal would only have the equivalent if Churchill had a secret meeting with Hitler or the Hatfields had a secret meeting with the McCoys. This is Tupac sitting down in secret with Biggie. This is the Crips and the Bloods breaking bread together. Enemies can't do this. It just seems offensive at face value. I guess Israel is on board and the hardest tribe, Benjamin, is on board. So nothing is stopping this reunification from happening. It's going to take place just like God said it would under the house of David. Looks like everything is in order for a peaceful transition. They have agreed upon the pact. <laughs> Look over there. J Joab is coming back. He's been gone on a raid. It's not like David taxed people or had any administrative system for gathering income to get all this food. He used raids to secure wealth and feed his army. And Joab got quite a, has quite a spoil with him. And he looks happy. King, we brought a load this trip. Check it out. Hey, Unc. Hey, Unc, what's the, uh, what's the party for? A lot has transpired, little nephew, since you've been gone. We are uniting the tribes under my kingship. Oh, great. How did it happen? I made a covenant with Abner. We kind of shook hands on it. You shook hands with the hand that killed my little brother? You made peace talks with a murderer? The murderer of your nephew? You do remember going to his funeral a few years ago. Joab wants to know why David didn't kill Abner when he was in his house. See, Joab is a kill first, think later type of person. You let him walk away scot-free? I want unity more than disunity, Joab. You can't possibly think a man such as Abner could act in sincerity. Verse 25, you know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you. To know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. Uncle, king, he's a spy. He's studying your movements. This is military intelligence. Abner has been accused of sexual seduction and now he's being accused of political seduction. Same word in the Hebrew, deceive. I know Joab's opposition to Abner is personal. But I also think it's political. Maybe he fears Abner would replace him. 
if Abner does broker this United Kingdom deal, David would be in his debt and maybe even start questioning if Abner should be his top general. If this goes through, Abner isn't going to be assigned some field commander position. He's going to be on the joint chiefs of staff. And I don't blame Joab. I wouldn't want to work with my brother's killer and I wouldn't want to be replaced as the number two man either. Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. Oh no. And they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. We have got to go talk to Joab. Joab, what are you planning? This isn't good. Don't do this. Is that a dagger in your hand? Are you going to kill him? This is a dastardly plot. Don't be a coward, Joab. Don't slay a man under the pretense of peace, under the pretense of a private conversation. Verse 27, And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Joab, was it worth it? Was it worth the re revenge? Do you feel better now? Was it worth the public relations scandal that will follow? You know you could have just ruined this whole kingdom reunification agreement. When the 11 tribes hear that Abner was killed in David's territory by David's general, they will likely back out. You could have just ruined God's unfolding plan for the kingdom. Your actions may have ruined it all. Wait until David hears news of this. <laughs> There's the messenger going to tell him. Let's follow and hear the reaction. Whew. We're here just in time to hear David's response. The messenger is finishing the story. David responds, verse 28. I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. David just cursed his nephew and his whole family. Wow. May every male member of your family have one of these things happen. A constant discharge, a skin disease, men reduced to women's work, spindle work, or starve to death or die in war. It's not looking good for the men in Joab's family. What else is the king saying? He just called Joab and his leaders to, to a meeting. Verse 31b. Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn for Abner. David repudiates the act of killing and commands a funeral. It's a state-sponsored funeral procession. 
Look, he's making Joab and his brother Abishai be official mourners. They are walking in front of the casket. They're wearing traditional mourning gear and forced to weep out loud. This is public humiliation for Joab. They are walking to Hebron. They are burying Abner in Hebron. You know the significance, right? That, that's the honored burial ground in Israel, like the Arlington Cemetery to us. They are lowering Abner into the grave. Look at David. He's weeping at the graveside. He's really sobbing, throwing his body around, being very demonstrative in mourning. It's undignified and deeply moving. David's giving a eulogy now. Second time he's done it in the book. Listen to him. Abner died in a secret assassination by a wicked man. <laughs> oh, junk. Look at everyone staring at Joab. Everyone knows he's the assassin. The crowd probably saw the murder as justified in avenging the death of his brother. Joab likely had enough societal cover and an honor and shame culture. You feel duty-bound to kill whoever killed your family member. Verse 35. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. The people. The people knew David didn't order this hit. They knew what went down and how it went down. By how, by how David responded to the news, it gained him incredible loyalty among the 11 tribes. The text goes out of the way to exonerate David, simply stating in verse 26, David did not know about it. It's an imperative to stress to us, the readers, that David was guiltless. The narrator is taking pains to clear David of any complicity in the deaths. No dark suspicions among the 11 tribes. David is not at fault. There is a right way and a wrong way to become king in ancient Israel. And David did it the right way. David not eating a, a burger and fries for the rest of the day. That looks good to the people. That's sincere mourning. They see the goodness of the king. The funeral is over. The people have all gone back home. And David returned to his house, to the back room, to the war room, with Joab and his brother and all the other commanders. You see him? David looks frustrated. Let's peek it through the crack in the door and hear what he says. Verse 39b. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, that's David's sister. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay each. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. 
See, this verse shows that it wasn't just Joab that killed Abner, but his brother helped him kill Abner as well. Well, what do you think of that? David leaves judgment with the Lord. Joab received no immediate serious punishment for killing Abner. I mean, I know it's his, his nephew, but, but this could have been disastrous. In my opinion, David knew he should have killed Joab. And I say that because at the end of his life, David gave his son Solomon a hit list, and Joab was on it. David said, for what Joab did, don't let him die peacefully. Put my nephew number one on the hit list. The fact that he didn't kill Joab haunted David to his death. He doesn't kill Joab, but he does complain about him. Those sons of Zeruiah are wearing me out. I spend all my time putting out fires. They start. Eugene Peterson calls these brothers boneheads. I like it. By the way, David, maybe you should stop worrying about your sister's kids and start worrying about your own. They're young, but you can already tell they're not on a good path. One timeless narrative. Pull you out. Five timely applications. We were in the story, so we couldn't do work on the story. Now we are out. We can do work on the story. This is a timeless story because it penetrates your story. This narrative in crazy, intricate ways is tied to your narrative. Five timely applications to put the truths of this narrative to work in your narrative. Application number one. God is working out his plan through imperfect people and in less than ideal circumstances. If I'm writing this story of God's kingdom under David finally coming to fruition, I'm not putting these guys in the narrative. Why waste good gospel ink on Abner and Joab? The Bible needs an editor. Why does the Bible have this stuff in it? Why are these two allowed to take up so much space? I think it was Calvin in his commentary always trying to paint Joab in a really good light and Abner in a really bad light. Doug Wilson seems to do the opposite. But both Abner and Joab were shrewd and wicked. You're, you're not being honest with the text without realizing that. You can't have a strictly white hat and black hat view of people in David's house and Saul's house. There are noble men on both sides. There are scoundrels and skunks on both sides. Why did God leave the kingdom in the hands of these people? It seemed like the kingdom legit was in the hands of Abner at one point. He was the broker that could bring the two together. For a minute, it seemed like Joab ruined God's unfolding plan for the kingdom by killing Abner. But friend, God's kingdom was never in danger of the crazy whims of some adulterous general or some vengeful military leader. This is how God worked then. 
He worked his plan through imperfect people in less than ideal circumstances. That's how he worked his plans then. And that's how he works his plans now. God always uses imperfect people with imperfect circumstances to accomplish his perfect will. So when you're surrounded by imperfect people and you're in less than ideal circumstances, don't think God isn't working. God works in the mess. And sometimes life can get so messy that you think, I, I wish I could just move away and start over. Find new friends, find a new job, find a new church. I got a, I got a history with her and it's just kind of awkward when we see one another. Or... He said something to me, and it would just be easier if I didn't have to see him anymore. Friend, don't forget that God works in the mess. If you are always running away from imperfect people and always running away from less than ideal circumstances, you're running away from the work of God. This is how he works. Application number two. Do you want God's kingdom or do you want to use God's kingdom for your own advances? Abner, Abner didn't want God's kingdom. He wanted to use God's kingdom for his own advances. When I hear people praise Abner for switching sides, <laughs> I just want to point out that Saul's house was growing weaker and weaker. And he knew it. If anyone knew it, Abner did. He was the one leading in the battles that kept losing to the house of David. Yes! He switched teams once he was called out for his adultery with the king's concubine. That's like praising the boy who saved his friend who fell into the water drain. The boy found a rope and tossed it to his friend and then pulled his friend to safety. The young boy was asked, what made you rescue your friend? The young boy answered, I had to. Just before he fell, I, I gave him my watch to wear. Abner did the right thing, but he did it for the wrong reason. He saw an opportunity to advance. And I got to give it to Abner. He woos the elders of Israel with God talk. He's smooth. He knows how to use the name of God to serve his purposes. Now let's talk about how politicians can do that, how pastors can do that, and how you can do that. Politicians first. If you think, if, if you don't think that there are politicians that talk about Christian values, but who aren't actually Christians, then you are blind. They, like Abner, use God's name to serve their purposes, which is getting elected. Now, pastors. Pastors, like Abner, can attempt to use the stage of history, God's salvation history, to make a name for themselves. There's too much of Abner in too many pastors. Using God's salvation history to create a following. God does not exist to build your following. God didn't lay out this history so that you could make a mark on it. All these pastors, I care about the kingdom, I care about the kingdom. 
You care about your place in the regime. Your efforts are not motivated by a desire for God's kingdom. Your efforts are motivated by how this kingdom could advance you. Politicians, pastors, now you. You. Well, I, I love Christianity because it gives me good community. Do you ultimately want good community and Christ just becomes a means to that end? Christ is a way you get good community? Then you don't want God's kingdom. You want what God's kingdom can give you. Abner thought God's kingdom would help his military standing. Do you think God's kingdom will help your financial standing? You talk about your business being God's business. Are you really saying that because you think it will help you get more sales and do better than you did last year? That's employers, now employees. Trying to use God's kingdom to get a job or a promotion is the work of Abner. That's using God's kingdom for your own advances. God's kingdom is not here to serve you. It's here for you to serve it. Application number three. All of Israel's kings failed their brides. Israel needs a king who is faithful to his bride. There's a theme running throughout this narrative of Israel's kings failing their wives. I'll just pull one. David. Even as God is giving David the kingdom, he stumbles on this. He was not faithful to his bride, any of them. David was a polygamist and not above marrying for political purposes. The diversity of his wives mentioned in verse 2 reveals he used these marriages deliberately. One wife was from the north above all the tribes to strategically spread out his alliances. These, these marriages helped him to politically outflank his enemies. David is clearly breaking the pattern of marriage found in Genesis 1, one man and one woman. It's true polygamy was approved by the surrounding culture, but it was forbidden in Scripture. Deuteronomy 17, 17 commanded the king must not, must not have multiple wives. Israel's king was not to be like the other eastern monarchs with a growing harem. The narrator, you say, well, the narrator doesn't say it's wrong. The narrator is not neutral on polygamy. He doesn't give his teaching on the matter because this is historical narrative. He's here to tell the story, not to comment on it. Solomon, David's best son and the next king of Israel, will see his father's sins of polygamy and say, hold my beer. He will have 700 wives and 300 concubines. All the wives, here and later, were faithful to their groom, their king. They had to be. They would die if they were not. Faithful brides with unfaithful kings. Faithful brides with unfaithful kings. That will not always be the case. Israel's final king will come and he will take one bride. We call her the bride of Christ. He's a better husband, a sinless groom. He's the king in every way that has been faithful to his bride. 
This faithfulness led him to a cross to take on him her sin. He bore all her sin on the cross. He took her place. He protected her from wrath. The cross she deserved, he took. These unfaithful kings should point you to the faithful king who will never sin against his bride, but always love her and give her security. It is my blessed privilege every Sunday to walk the bride down the aisle to her sinless groom. The bride of Christ finally receives her faithful king, but he doesn't receive a faithful bride. See, the story is reversed. There's a faithful groom and an unfaithful bride. Application number four. Being a father to your children is more important than fathering them. Being a father to your children is more important than fathering them. Of David's six sons mentioned in verse 2, three of them lived wickedly and died violently. Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. David was a great leader. He was a poor father. He led his nation to victory. He led his home to failure. Hey, Daddy, you need to evangelize your children. You need to realize you have a mere 18 years with them. You're more than a sperm donor. You're an image bearer of their heavenly father. A broken image bearer, yes, but an image bearer. You need to make sure they truly know the Lord. You need to be watching for fruit. You say, that's what church programs are for. No, that's what you're for. That is your responsibility. We have an entire generation raised through church youth groups. And where are they now? Not walking with the Lord. And their parents want to blame it on the youth group. Look in the mirror. It's you. Your child doesn't need a youth group. They need a daddy who walks with God. Fathers with adult children, when you see your grown child and he or she bears no fruits of repentance, they bear no fruits of repentance. They value their job over the church. They are selfish. They don't hunger and thirst after God's word. And you shake it off because they prayed a prayer when they were eight years old. Your child is not a Christian. You need to start evangelizing them. There's not a category of Christians in the Bible that are Christians but don't show it. That there's no fruit. Where Jesus is not Lord of their lives. That, that doesn't exist. Now let me... Let me get tender for a moment. To the child who is saying, it's just me and my mom. My dad left us, deserted us. I wish I had the fathering of David. Would have at least been better than what I had. Here's my word to you. Earthly fathers were never meant to last forever. A heavenly father was. Earthly fathers are a shadow. He, the heavenly father is the reality. You don't have the shadow. 
And I'm sorry about that. But you do have the reality. Application number five. I don't see how my life could be the result of the plan of a loving God. I don't see how my life could be the result of the plan of a loving God. You, you have to hear this said with tears. I don't see how my life could be the result of the plan of a loving God. There are, are many painful smaller stories in the grand overarching story. Like Michael's second husband who had her ripped away from him and given to David and he cried after her then was bullied to go back home. He cried all the way home. Life wasn't good for that man. What about David's many wives? This wasn't an enjoyable life for them, competing with the other brides. Sometimes we only identify with the main characters in the story, but there are many other characters. The stories run alongside David and Saul's. But for them, it's not happy clappy. When your story is painful, look up. And see that your little story is part of a grand overarching story. It's the story of redemption. This crying man walking home to his empty house. And the wife who had a house full of other wives. Both of them have ultimate hope. It's this. God bringing Jesus to earth to redeem a hurting people. Whatever pain you experience in life is not wasted. It is working. It is producing for you glory to come on the new earth. Call out to Jesus for salvation. He gives meaning to hurt and comfort to the brokenhearted. Would you stand with me? Well, we feasted today, Father. What a feast you have spread before us. We leave full. We have tasted that the Lord is good. Would you continue to build us, mold us, make us into the image of your precious Son? When people see us, may they see Christ. When people see us hurt, may they see us hurt like Christ hurt. Do this for your people, Lord.